Imperfection may be part of the human condition, but when mistakes occur in medicine, the after-effects can be devastating. While medicine and pharmacy have been practiced for thousands of years, the phenomenon of the medication error has persisted and may occur on the watch of even the most cautious and diligent healthcare provider. So it becomes fair to ask, what's changed? How is technology improving our ability to prevent mistakes? As healthcare professionals, how can we become more actively involved in promoting safe medication use, and how do we stand to benefit? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Diane Cousins, registered pharmacist and vice president of the Department of Healthcare Quality and Safety Documentary Standards Division at the United States Pharmacopeia. Ms. Cousins was instrumental in assembling the USP's first advisory panel on medication errors and creating the National Coordinating Council for Medication Error Reporting and Prevention. Diane, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. To provide a little background, I thought I'd start off by asking, what is USP and what sort of role does it play specifically in medication error reporting? Well, USP is a public standard-setting organization, and we set standards for prescription over-the-counter medicines, dietary supplements, food ingredients, and other healthcare products manufactured and sold in the United States. The authority to set these standards is actually derived from the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, so that this federal authority gives USP the ability to set standards that are enforceable by the Food and Drug Administration. What's NCC MERP? In 1995, USP had been operating a medication errors reporting program for four years, and we began to learn about circumstances beyond our mission, and we felt we needed to do something about those medication errors. And When we became involved in medication errors, we did it because we wanted to get involved in areas where our standard-setting authority was clear, in areas of drug naming, packaging, labeling, storage, and the like. But we began to learn there was much more to this problem than what USP could effect. And so we convened a group of 14 national organizations and agencies that had the means and the resources and the membership, the outreach, to really help resolve some of these issues and then disseminate the results of the work of this group in a way that could reach out to the masses. We began at a group called the National Coordinating Council for Medication Error Reporting and Prevention. And this council was actually modeled after an earlier National Coordinating Committee in the early 70s that focused on large-volume parenterals. There had been around 50 deaths, I think, due to problems with large-volume parenterals, and that group was so successful in addressing the problems at the time that we felt this could be a model organization for addressing medication errors as well. So we adapted that model in a way that brought together national organizations and agencies that had an interest in medication error prevention, and it actually was the start of a council that still remains today, one that is independent, one that is completely funded by our own contributions of organizations. There are no dues. There is no formal membership as such, just the passion to address issues regarding medication errors. You mentioned that the organization upon which NCC MERP was modeled was largely successful. What are some of the accomplishments of NCC MERP of which you're most proud Well, this year, the National Coordinating Council was recognized with the John Eisenberg Award from the National Quality Forum and the Joint Commission. 
And that award recognized innovation in quality and patient safety. And the achievements of the National Coordinating Council, I think I can safely say as a founding member and for those other organizations that worked with us in those early days, it has far surpassed the reach that we had ever expected. Uh, One of our most difficult challenges in the very beginning was defining what is a medication error. There were so many variations in what an error was being perceived as. For example, there were some research studies that were measuring medication errors beginning at the point of following the physician's order of the drug. And, of course, what we've learned is that there could be error in the ordering step. And so the definition of medication error reached back all the way to the beginning of the medication use process. And it also followed through the process to the point of not just administering but also monitoring the drug's effects. And so this broader definition of medication error was really the first time that we had begun to look at this continuum and assign these points at which things could go wrong. The definition of medication error also included the concept of preventability, one that has been key to the development of patient safety initiatives over the years. After defining a medication error, we created a classification system that ranked the severity of the error based on the outcome to the patient. So this, what we call a category index, ranks from A through I. The different stages of medication errors at the point at which they are identified. So you have what we call potential errors. These are sort of hazardous situations. It hasn't quite occurred, but you could imagine that two labels of drug product are so similar that the two products could be mixed up one for another. We have errors that are intercepted along the way. And so one healthcare professional somehow identifies that the wrong product was dispensed and prevents this from actually reaching the patient. We have errors that reach the patient and have no adverse outcome or require observation or monitoring. But we also have medication errors that reach the patient and cause some level of harm or even fatality. And all of these are graded in this category index. And these really have been the cornerstones of medication error analysis and prevention in the years that followed. I think it's clear to most listeners that the medication errors represent a direct threat to the credo of doing no harm to patients, but I thought I'd take a moment to recognize perhaps some of the other effects that medication errors can have on institutions. What would you say some of those are? Well, I mean, first of all, the fact that a patient is harmed by an error is, of course, something that both a healthcare professional and the institution want to avoid at all costs. I mean, people are coming for health care, and they expect it to be safe health care and they have that right to expect it. When these errors occur, though, there are many ways in which they manifest in effect, and even far beyond the patient. I mean, there are healthcare professionals who are involved in these, and we see this all the time. These are people who are dedicated professionals. Oftentimes, they've been in service for many years. They would never think of doing something that could harm a patient, but somehow in the course of events, something happens. So you have the individual healthcare professionals who the institution would have concern for. We have the use of resources. I mean, when an error occurs, first of all, it's not always very evident that it did occur, but once it's determined, obviously you're trying to manage this patient. And we do track the responses to medication errors, which can often include administering life support, providing antidote by way of drug, 
increasing observation, increasing the number of tests involved, all of which cost the healthcare system in the long run. And finally, I think one of the effects that's becoming more and more apparent to the public is the reputation of the hospital. I mean, not only are these things something that make it into the press and become detrimental to the reputation of the hospital, but also the idea, the concept of public reporting is becoming more and more a notion that we feel can help consumers, patients choose where they want their care delivered. And so the fact that these adverse events are occurring can, in fact, be reflective of the reputation of the institution. And finally, you know, there is the payment model that goes along with this. Uh, The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently declined payment for certain adverse events that occur in hospitals. And of course, that will certainly get the attention of the administrators and those who are in a position to really give it the attention that it needs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Diane Cousins, Vice President at the United States Pharmacopeia's Department of Healthcare Quality and Safety Documentary Standards Division, where you've been discussing the collection of information to help us learn from medication errors. And I thought I might resume by asking which health professions are most commonly involved in medication errors and which ones also seem to be the best at reporting them. Well, you know, it's interesting when we look at who's involved in these errors, most of all, it tends to reflect reporting rates more so than error rates. And so what we have seen from the earliest days were numbers higher in the area of pharmacy personnel or nursing personnel. They're usually the ones that identify these errors and they are used to, especially in the pharmacy area, documenting these things. Uh, Nurses are used to documenting incident reports. So what we have seen over the years has been proportions of maybe a third, 15%, maybe a a low end for these two disciplines. But again, this is more, I think, reflective of reporting rates than it is of actual error rates because we don't really know what we don't know. We only know what's been reported. One of the things we have seen over the years, though, is an increase in the documentation of errors, for example, involving prescribers. And so this is starting to change the mix of proportion of errors by healthcare professionals involved. But I will say that USP is tracking, I think it's about 30 different individual staff types in these hospitals and health systems, and all of them have been involved in errors in in one way or another. So while we think about the most obvious disciplines, the fact is that anyone who's involved with medication, administration, dispensing, storage, et cetera, can be involved in medication errors. You have at your disposal information about which uh, medications are most commonly implicated in medication errors. Are there any medications in that list that kind of surprise you in terms of, again, you know, being involved at such a high rate with medication errors? It's interesting that USP has tracked medication errors since 1991, and we probably have seen very little variation in the medications that are involved in medication errors. Granted, a lot of this reporting has happened in hospitals and their related facilities, and so the medications tend to be reflective of possibly the things that are used in highest volume. But what we have seen is that there are certain things that top the list, whether it's the top five or the top ten, and those are insulin, morphine, heparin, hydromorphone, warfarin, potassium chloride for many years. You know, we were seeing these errors with undiluted potassium chloride. And in fact, although they are more rare now, they do in fact continue to exist. 
So what you'll hear then, as I was mentioning these drugs, is a, a similarity in the drug classes. So you know, the opioid analgesics, the anticoagulants, really are what we now call these high-alert drugs, drugs that have the potential to cause harm when an error does occur. And these are the drugs that institutions should place priority on when they're trying to design safety into their systems. Do you feel that the advent of improved technology, you know, be it in the the pharmacy or elsewhere in the health system setting, has increased or decreased the incidence of medication errors? The implementation of technology is an interesting phenomenon. I think everyone believes that there are the obvious benefits of employing technology. And we do, in fact, see that certain types of errors are reduced when certain technologies are employed. But what we've also found is that these technologies contribute to new types of errors. And so the perception that merely the implementation of technology will eliminate error is a misperception. And what we find is that those technology groups within institutions that design these systems need to consider the interdisciplinary nature of the individuals involved in using them. They need to integrate as many technology-based systems as they can. When there are marketed products like automated dispensing cabinets that come with certain safety features, those safety features should be turned on. We see many errors where these errors could have been avoided had the warning system been implemented or had the interaction system been implemented, and it was not. But we also find human error involved. At some point, these technologies oftentimes, you know, obviously they're interfacing with humans. So whether it's humans that are filling the automated dispensing cabinets or humans that have to figure out a dose for a drug that doesn't have a dosing schedule built into a CPOE system, there are potential areas for error that are inherent in most systems. And those facilities that remain aware of the potential for these errors, that use databases like MedMarks to identify where these safety nets are weak. These are the institutions that can benefit in the initial design and implementation of their systems to be as error-proof as possible. We've been talking with Diane Cousins about medication error reporting and what we stand to learn from it. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and you've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MDXM157, and thanks for listening.